Hello and welcome to Nightlight. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth my death until I come. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Luke 22, verse 19. The conference was coming to its close after four days of intense ministry. All sorts of personal and relational issues had been met by the presence of the Holy Spirit. I was not aware, though, of one silent observer sitting in the back who was not celebrating, was not participating with the spirit of that final celebration. As always, we close every conference with the Eucharist. For sacramental folks, that's the word from the Greek which means the great thanksgiving. For those from less formal backgrounds, it's the Lord's Supper or simply communion. All these words are right and proper in their description. None of them is wrong. We've come from Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, Anglican, and even one Greek Orthodox, I think, along with a smattering of mongrel charismatics with no definite religious pedigree. The unifying power among us was not our denominational labels, nor were they barriers between us. The unifying power among us was the power that is in all God's people from every nation, kindred, and tongue. We met around the partaking of his body and his blood as he commanded us and invited us to do. There seems to be only two times in the history of the church in which we are not fighting about things Jesus told us to do. In times of suffering and persecution, no one seems to want to argue. They just humbly take what is offered. Corey Ten Boom describes her experience of the communion when suffering along with thousands of other women in Robbins Brook uh, death camp in World War II. When she secretly arranged for a gathering of believers in Jesus to share stale bread and dirty water as the only elements available, no one entered into a theological debate over whether God could bless such feeble offerings as that. No one got ill-tempered that there was not single cups or the proper wafers. There was no conflict over grape juice versus real wine, not only because there was no wine and no grape juice, but because the agony of their dark circumstances had elevated their hearts in humility to gratefully receive whatever degree of the real presence might be manifested through this feeble offering. And that was another thing. No one gave any breath to a conversation, heated or otherwise, as to whether the real presence might be manifested through the, the bread and wine or whether it was, quote, just a symbol. No one, no one thought like that in those contexts and in those circumstances. In an atmosphere lacking in any outward grace and manifesting the worst that men can produce with the help of demons. Every suffering soul there gratefully took the bread and the water of life in this circumstance. Corey's meager offering to them was being blessed by the promise given by the Lord Jesus himself that as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you show forth my death that which is past, until I come again, that which is future. And in between the past and the future, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And in those circumstances, that was a very precious, received promise. And the childlike act of eating and drinking gave a a, a roadway for that grace to incarnate into every person their bodies, their inner beings, the meaning of that death and the promise of that resurrection. So again, no one was offended that a woman was standing up before them in the office of a priest officiating the holy meal. Not that Corey was officiating. 
She was actually just doing what all of us are called to do as kings and priests. She was ruling in the midst of her enemies by serving in humility and grace. Lutherans, Greeks, Serbians or Russians, Catholic or free church members, and some who no doubt had no church affiliation at all, just came to the table of the Lord, so to speak, seeking his presence in moldy bread and dirty water. And his presence, felt or not, was there because he promised he would be there. Yes, the times that seemed to purge away secondary arguments, as valid as those arguments may seem to be in proper settings of theological discussion, it's in those times of difficulty, those arguments are purged away. When prosperity has given way to need and suffering, pretense is purged away. But there's another time when this wonder of unity can be achieved and enjoyed. We were doing it at the conference. How good and blessed it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, Psalm 133 says. It's like the anointing oil that ran down Aaron's beard and down his garments. There the Lord commands the blessing, even life forevermore. Thankfully, it's not always that people can come into unity only in times of suffering. We were in that very same spirit of unity at the closing Eucharist of the healing conference. But let me add that even there, that kind of unity had been forged with a certain degree of suffering. For the people moving forward that morning to receive communion, uh, this time being ministered with all the proper elements and all the reverence and all the symbolism and the beauty and comfort. We were not suffering from Nazi persecution, but there was suffering. Some with inner struggles they had secretly been battling, some with sorrows, broken families and broken marriages, some with diseases of body and mind, all coming together, not because they had worked out agreements on all their differences, but because they laid aside those differences and aimed their heart's attention at the Lord Jesus himself. So if everyone present is looking at Jesus and moving toward him, it's a simple fact of physics, isn't it? If we will move toward him, we are automatically moving toward one another. Such unity brings blessing. On that day of Pentecost, it says, quote, they were all together in one place, and when they were in one accord, then the Holy Spirit came and filled them all. That was again what was happening with us. As we came in one accord, the presence of the Lord seemed to get stronger and stronger. As I mentioned earlier, all, all was... Well, except for one person. Unbeknownst to me or any of the healing team, this man who had been with us from the very opening of the conference had been struggling session by session, day by day, battling a tormenting mental turmoil that was screaming in his mind to run away, get out of this place. He had resisted for four days. When it became clear that he was not going to obey the voices, that told him to run, the voices changed. For the last two days, they were constantly barrages of criticism, hatred, suggestions of violence. But then, at the closing moments in the final worship songs, as we begin to sing, the officiating priest was inviting people to come to receive the broken body and poured out blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The voices inside this man screamed at him to attack me physically. As much as demons uh, in Hollywood would like to present the idea in their horror films and TV programs and propaganda machines, the lie that they are omnipotent and greatly powerful, they're far from it. 
Even the demonized man in the book of Mark, who was possessed by legion, had the ability to run towards Jesus and not away from him. Doreen Irving, the once queen of the witches uh, of Europe, uh, went purposefully to disrupt the, the, the preaching of the gospel in a gathering in Bristol, England. And when she became enthralled by the message she was hearing, uh, she began to really listen. And the demons who had controlled her for years began to urge her to run away. And she simply told them, no, I want to hear what he says. And she came to Christ that very night. This suffering man who had in, endured this inner war for days during the conference uh, had come to the altar and managed not to attack me, but to try to receive what was offered. And as he knelt to take the bread, the moment the bread touched his hand, the demon who had been uh, driving him to leave decided it might be best for the demon himself to leave. And so he tore the man, and as, as he screamed, uh, the demon made its exit, and the man's mental torment stopped, and he left us free and at peace after telling us this story that I've been telling you. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be in a formal, quiet, reverent worship service in which a suffering, demonized man can scream out as he's being delivered. And everyone just goes right on with what they're doing. Stop for a moment, give thanks to God for the deliverance. I mean, after all, that's what the Eucharist is. It's the great thanksgiving. And what better thing to give thanks for than the man being delivered from the evil spirit. And then go right back to what you're doing. No, no religious feathers ruffled. Now, no question, there's more going on here than just a symbol. The real presence is active in the body and blood, the bread and the wine. Whether we call it Eucharist or Lord's Supper or Communion or the Mass, the fact that the church has developed various names for and various ways of partaking of the bread and the wine just shows two facts clearly. One, that we take this seriously, and two, that we're all trying to find the right way to properly respond to it in faith. It is just a sad commentary on our great need for deliverance from sin that the church manages to make a fight even out of the one bread and the one cup. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7, there's one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one who is over all, through all, and in you all. Now this oneness of all of us in Christ is one of the clearest themes in the entire New Testament. So, of course, we managed to make a confused argument out of it with our little denominational rivalries and we elevate our doctrinal positions to primary positions. Uh, and so while we're glorifying our doctrines, we separate the very body of Christ, which is beyond mere human definitions of doctrine. I'm not saying doctrine's not important, but when your doctrine separates you from a brother or sister in Christ and you let the doctrine become the deciding factor of whether you love this man or woman or not, then your doctrine has become antichrist, even if it's truth. His high priestly prayer found in John 17 will come to pass exactly as he spoke it, that we all might be one, even as he and the Father are one. How that's going to happen? Well, I don't know, but I'm watching it happen in some degrees. It's, it's happening and will continue to develop as more and more of his people see him as the ultimate aim and focus of their life. And as they move more and more towards him, we are moving more and more toward one another until we all come, as it says in Ephesians 4, into the unity of the faith, to the full knowledge of the Son of God. Now Paul underscores this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, when he says, 
For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came into existence, and through whom we exist. Notice, by the way, this is an aside, but here Paul makes no attempt to explain how he can refer to the Father and to Jesus in terms that make Jesus co-equal with God. He simply states what was very early the understanding of all Christians, that Jesus is the human exact representation of the invisible God, that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in a human body, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. Paul had begun this discourse about the oneness of God with his people and therefore our oneness with each other in him uh, by addressing questions concerning food that had been set apart for the worship of idols. He says in that verse immediately preceding this one that I just read, there are many so-called gods and so-called lords both in heaven and in earth. His point is that they're not really gods, though they do really exist. And later in this subject, he explains that though we're not under the authority of any false gods, we are free. We must not use that freedom, however, to cause a weaker person to stumble by participating in uh, the eating of food that has been offered to idols. For the free believer, it would make no difference. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. But for the one still afraid of dark powers, still giving them consideration uh, that they, they might be badly damaged. Then Paul compares what happens in idolatry up against what happens in the receiving of the body and blood of Jesus. It's this clash of two kingdoms that I want to focus on in our time together. As a Protestant pastor, it has always grieved me to watch communion services in most churches. Thankfully, not all churches, but sadly most that I've been a a part of. For the most part, people go through the motions with no understanding and therefore with not much faith. I say to people regarding communion that as a boy I had no idea what the tiny little chewies were for, but I assumed that the tiny little thimble full of juice was to help you keep from choking to death on the tiny little chewies. But I I can tell sometimes when I say that jokingly that the people I'm saying it to, they're not joking. They, They almost want to say, well, isn't that true? Now, I'm being a little facetious, but I don't want to I don't want to be insulting to anyone, especially on this subject, which commands that we walk in love and unity with our brothers and sisters before we participate. Why? Because if we willfully participate in the spirit of communion while having a spirit that is in opposition to communion, It can set off a chain reaction in our bodies that can cause us to die before our time. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. There's no no sense going to some commentary and trying to find what the, quote, real meaning of that verse is. The real meaning is what it just said. That if you don't discern the body of Christ, and that means discern it not only on uh, what's on the table, but who's around the table. That you properly relate to the reception of the the communion, but you also properly relate to the people around you. I mean, how many times have Christians participated in the, the body and blood of the Lord only to walk away from the table and criticize the very brother or sister they just were standing with. Now, this fact itself should settle the question of whether communion is just a symbol. Now, we'll discuss in a moment not whether there is genuine power coming to us through the bread and the wine. That's, I think, a settled question. But the question is, what sort of power and how should we relate to that power? But for now... Let me address the sad fact that Mary and I often encountered dear, good people 
in churches where we ministered who had never even taken communion their whole life because they were so afraid of coming under the judgment of 1 Corinthians 11 that I just quoted. Now, some people may laugh at that and say, well, the fact is they're probably mad at somebody and they'd rather stay mad than get right and take communion, so they just skip communion. And there may be people that knuckle-headed, but I don't think any of these people that we've encountered were in that category. I think what really was happening was it was a, a manifestation of a terrible misunderstanding of the heart of God and a poisonous, wrong-headed fear of being judged and rejected. Now think about it. Is God saying, quote, you better not hate each other, and you better not hurt each other, because if you do, then I will hate you and I will hurt you. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, if you come in with a wrong spirit, and unite yourself with a right spirit, that right spirit is not going to accommodate your wrong spirit, but your wrong spirit will come under the natural, supernatural judgment of that right spirit. In other words, if, if, if you're not going to align yourself with the right spirit, then being aligned with the wrong spirit could affect your physical health to the point of premature death. That's the very reason we always have in our applications for our conferences this question, have you ever participated in the occult in any form, and if so, are you willing to renounce it and turn from it? Now, we have that question because we don't want people to come to a conference and die. I'm not being facetious. I say this with the the old ultimate humility and holy fear. I mean it. There are real powers at work in these interactions. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 14 and following Paul delineates this in more detail. Where he says, look dear friends flee from idol worship. I speak to you as people with wisdom so judge clearly what I'm saying. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the very blood of Christ? The bread which we uh, break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, this, see what he's saying here? This is real communication of the efficacious work of grace that was purchased by the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Again, it's sad to me that if you bring this up in some circles, it turns into an argument. Just try to say what the Scripture says and don't say what the Scriptures don't say. So he goes on to say here, For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Consider Israel as a nation. Are not they who eat of the offering and sacrifice partakers of that altar? What am I saying? That idols are anything in themselves? Or that which is offered to idols is anything in itself? No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, the things which the pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I would not have you to be in fellowship with demons You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and a partaker of the table of demons. So what Paul is saying here is that whatever you are partaking of in the actual food you're eating, depending on where your faith is and where your heart motivation is, that decides what is being manifested in the spirit realm with regard to you. Now, We in the West are so bereft to grasp the full meaning of symbols and the power behind them. We tend to either think of them as mere rituals that we must offer some outer sign of respect for because our church traditions say so, or we go way the other end of the spectrum and think if you do take it seriously, then you must be operating in some kind of magic It was the Latin phrase used by the Roman priesthood when praying over the bread 
for it to become the body of Christ. Hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. That phrase became mongrelized into the derogatory term hocus pocus, which now means that which is bogus, foolish, meaningless, so forth. Let's examine both ends of this equal but opposite error and ask God to help us find the truth because we need to know the truth. God is not ever affirming the mere use of objects and rituals to engage in spiritual powers apart from engaging with himself. In other words, God has never given over uh, his relationship with us to, to be found in mere rituals that are dead. Meaning by dead, they're separated from his real presence. All kinds of, of real rituals may be alive with strange powers, but they're dead because they're not drawing their power from his real presence, who is the source of life. The Protestant reformers protested against what they had sadly uh, seen as the disintegration into dead ritual, that which was often used as a political weapon to control people through fear of being excommunicated, cut off, cut off of the communion with God and therefore damned. Magic is a counterfeit, twisted misrepresentation of the true human calling to be kings and priests, as Corey was in Ravensbrück. Kings and priests of our God in the earth, Revelation 1.5. Magic is the attempt to obtain supernatural power without paying the price of self-giving obedience to the only ultimate source of power, God himself. The sacraments, the body and blood, are, are the very opposite of magic, but are the open declaration and celebration that Jesus has paid the price and that he alone has all power in heaven and on earth. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we misinterpret this phrase to mean that at communion services, we should say a sermon about communion. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But there's nothing necessarily uh, wrong with, with anything we do to honor what's happening at the table. But it, you, we miss the point. It's almost like a couple on their honeymoon, reading to one another out of the medical manual the mechanics of the sexual union instead of uh, consummating their marriage. No, when Paul says we are to show forth his death, or as the, I think the NIV translates it, as, as I just read, announcing his death, the word he uses there is a very common Greek word, Catangelo, you hear angelos in that, ang the word for angel or, or evangelion, the a message of the good news. You are making a proclamation. You are making an announcement. It's a public announcement. And, and he, Paul doesn't mean that you're to preach a sermon on it, but that you are, by partaking in it, making a declaration to the principalities and powers and to the earthly powers. It is the action you take of receiving that bread and that wine in the spirit of awe and thanksgiving and unity and worship. It's that action which in itself becomes a declaration to the principalities and powers, to the demons of the idol altars, to Caesar in Rome and to all the world rulers that Christ has died Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And we need to include in that ancient Eucharistic declaration also, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is ruling now and will come again. And all the rulers of the earth are under his authority. Already under his authority. What you're doing when you receive communion is among other things, and hopefully in Later times together, we'll discuss some of these other things that are going on. But you are declaring to the powers of darkness, Christ has already destroyed your power, already conquered you. I mentioned a few moments ago that 
the misunderstanding uh, uh, that the transcendent meaning behind the Eucharist and making it only some somber meditative homily on the death of Jesus for us is sort of like a honeymoon couple studying the sex manual together on their honeymoon night. Now that may seem a bit in bad taste to some, but I'm offering that image purposefully, and here's why. Another word we badly misunderstand and therefore miss out on its power is the word remember. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. But what does that mean? If I were to ask you if you remember my wedding, you might naturally say, if you weren't at my wedding, well, no, I don't remember it. I wasn't there. But if you were to ask uh, an Orthodox Jew to remember his wedding, he would jump up and pull out all the accoutrements of the ceremony and reenact the ceremony. The word remember in Greek is anamnesis. Now you hear the word maybe amnesia, anamnesis in that. It has to do with remembering or not remembering. To anamnesis, to remember here would be much better if you think of it in uh, terms uh, uh, like this. What does it mean to dismember? It means to take something apart. So what does it mean to remember? It means to put things back together, to put things back in their whole proper connection. So as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember, re-reconnect with each other, reconnect mostly with the Lord. Re, and it doesn't mean you, you've lost him, and it doesn't mean he's lost you, but you are reestablishing by declaration in the spirit realm. You're making a declaration. Uh, I can't stress that enough. And I'll talk more about it later. You're, you're, you're worshiping God in oneness of spirit, and you will do this until uh, all come into the unity of faith into the full knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, Paul says in Ephesians. We remember him means we reestablish our total unity with him and therefore with all who do the same thing. That's why in the Eucharist we say, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we praise your great and glorious name. All the company of heaven. How many times have I stood in a communion service and heard those words and felt the presence of many, many, all my loved ones who have gone over to the other side. What a great comfort we cheat ourselves out of when we get so ridiculously hyper-Protestant that we're afraid by anybody saying what I just said, that you're aware of the presence of those who've gone on, that you're contacting the dead well, they're not dead, are they? For heaven's sakes, for earth's sakes, for our sakes. Uh, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. I think about C.S. Lewis and Oswald Chambers and A.W. Tozer and uh, Amy Carmichael. and uh, I mean, the list just goes on and on of people who are having communion with me as I have it with my family and with all those loved ones in that room. As well as grandparents and parents and loved, beloved friends. Oh, what peace we cheat ourselves out of by not understanding these realities. Now, the imagery of a newlywed couple failing to engage the physical consummation of their covenant because they're sitting on the threshold of their wedding chamber reading a textbook on the mechanics of it is very much to the point I remember a young man years ago who had just come to Jesus out of a life of homosexual prostitution on the streets of Los Angeles. He said, the Lord spoke to me as I went to communion. His, his lips were trembling, his hands were shaking, and his eyes were filling with tears. He said, never again will you need the body of another man. That's what the Lord said to him. Never again will you need the body of another man. Your mind and I am yours. This is my body. This is my blood. And he just wept and worshipped. If that seems indelicate or even borderline blasphemous to some of us, it only means we have a lot to learn about the heart of God and the meaning 
of the holy things we have so poorly understood, so poorly handled, and so poorly communicated, and so poorly received for ourselves. What a gospel! What glorious news to the most deeply fallen and most broken people that the king of the ages would come down to us and enter into our lowest grave only to bring us up with, for, and in him, forever united to him, so much so that the broken idols of the previous life of immoral worship of the creature is replaced by the real presence of the true creator. And we can shout to the false gods and idols of our past, I am now bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And every time I eat this bread and drink this cup, I am announcing to you, the princes of this evil world, that he has conquered you by his death, dominated you in his resurrection, and will destroy you by his soon coming again. And I, who was a whore under your rule and a slave under your feet, am free from you and will rule over you with him forever and ever. Amen. We held a conference in Switzerland many years ago where Mary simply was explaining the full true meaning of the communion we were about to enter into when all of a sudden a young man came running from the back. We didn't know what was about to happen. He was from Bosnia-Herzegovina. He came running toward the platform from the back of the conference. No one at first had any idea if this was dangerous or not. He just, he just slid into the altar on his knees, raised his head, lifted his hands to heaven, tears rolling down his face as he cried out to receive the, the body and blood of Jesus. He was running to the mercy seat to receive communion, to make that declaration to the evil powers that he had seen destroy his land and, and hurt and kill people he loved. He was making clear to them and all of us and to himself who he belonged to, where his allegiance lay. And he didn't want to wait for the preliminaries or even to be, uh, to have manners. He just ran he had no time to waste. He explained to us after that the moment he understood what the, the celebration of the Eucharist was saying, everything instantly came clear for him and he could not wait for protocols. He forgave his enemies. He embraced his loved ones uh, in his heart who were not present with him but who had already gone over uh, through death. He, he, he felt the, the remembering, reconnecting going on in his body, in his soul, and in his spirit. Now, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, it says this of the church. Paul says, I was raised up and sent to, to, to declare this message, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. God's intention was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The mystery that has been hidden from the ages, that God intended to be manifested through God's people is that the Jews and the Gentiles in Christ, in Messiah, would be one people under one God, partaking of one loaf, living in one faith, manifesting one kingdom. Now when Jesus chose the Passover as the moment of his passion, he took that event and, and lifted it into a realm beyond its already magnificent role in the life of Israel. And he transcended the earthly deliverance of God's people from Pharaoh. Now all his people, both Jew and Gentile, will come into unity in him and the celebration will not be of the day we came out of Egypt 
or the day Pharaoh was defeated, or the day that our slavery in Egypt was abolished, but it will be lifted to a place of the new covenant in his blood, which will celebrate the slave, the, the deliverance from slavery of all the people of the whole world from the bondage of the demonic, satanic Pharaoh and the powers of the whole world. All bondage, all principalities and powers, all over the world, all their idols, all their chains of darkness, overthrown and broken. Just as the Israel left Egypt in the power of the Passover meal, so there will be no feeble one among them. So now, those who put their trust in Jesus will leave behind the world system and live in the power of a new Passover, the very body and blood, not of the Passover lamb, but of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, in closing, let's open up a can of worms we don't have time to adequately examine, but let's at least consider it for a moment. It's a normal question to ask that if Jesus destroyed principalities and powers at the cross, if his Passover blood overthrew the death angel and his suffering somehow destroyed the gods of this present world system, why are they still in existence? See, in our way of thinking, it should have all been consummated and evil should have been destroyed by a flash of divine wrath. But what do we see? First, we see a handful of faithful disciples being filled with the Holy Spirit. We see, little by little, them take over first Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then into Europe and Asia, then the New World, and now moving into all nations. We see uh, terrible things happening in the midst of this ongoing movement. Some people, well-meaning Christian people, think that Actually, evil is getting worse and worse and worse, and then the, the body of Christ will just be a helpless little body of people huddled together on the mountaintop, hoping for a rapture rescue off the terrible world that's just catapulted then into hellfire and damnation. That's not what's happening in the earth, and it's not what the Scripture says will happen. It says evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But then it says, but they shall proceed no further. For their folly will be made manifest to all people, as Jannes and Jambres' folly was made manifest. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the goodness of the Lord, like the waters cover the sea. All nations shall come to him. So what's happening well, the kingdom of God is spreading through the earth the same way our king initiated our salvation. This, this is hard maybe for some people to hear. They think, well, we got saved and we, we're going to go to heaven. Well, yeah, you did get saved and you are going to go to heaven, but that's not what this is about. What this is about is the, the king of the kingdom bringing us into alignment with him so that we become kings and priests under him. Kings rule, priests intercede. Kings execute judgment against evil, and we're called to do that. And so Paul says in Romans 5, we, rule, we reign in life by Christ Jesus. So the overthrow of the kingdom of darkness, which was decisively done at Calvary is that darkness is being driven out of existence by the same spirit of the cross which was initiating our salvation at the beginning we're not going to be merely saved so we can go to heaven when we die we are delivered from the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of the son of God Ephesians 1 we then follow him and live as he lived taking up our cross and therefore manifesting the kingdom of God through the way we live and the way we, we obey the Lord. You know, the, the, blood of the, the blood of the saints, we don't add anything to what Jesus did at the cross. And yet, we do. There's something about the blood of the martyrs. Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
he, he said to the Roman government, uh, the more you kill us, the more we're taking over. And uh, only God knows what's happening in the spirit world over Iraq and Syria and Iran and North Korea and Cuba and China and all the places where our brothers and sisters' blood is being shed for the, the sake of the gospel. But you see, we want Jesus' death and resurrection to be the, the deciding moment that results in the immediate destruction of evil. And I understand that. I, I perfectly understand it. But here's something more glorious and more demanding of me and you. And that is that we, he destroyed principalities and powers and yet they still manifest because we must manifest what he did at Calvary in the earth. And if it means our death, then it's a happy death. But see, we in the West have not thought like this. We haven't had to think like this. And as a result, we've developed all kinds of uh, doctrines that are focused mainly on us flying out of here and escaping into the heavens, letting the world go to hell. As a result of that, we've given over everything to the devil. The arts, uh, entertainment, uh, music, uh, business, education, government. We've just given it all to the devil. And the principalities and powers who are outlaws, who know their time is short. They know that they're, they're on borrowed time. But as long as we don't rule in life by Christ Jesus, they're happy to take that place and function in it as if it was their rightful place to be. Especially if they can convince the church that we're just poor little pilgrims and strangers traveling through this world of woe. I'm so foot sore and poorly shod. But at the end of the journey, there is God. No, 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 no. Forget the end of the journey. And forget being footsore and poorly shod. I'm not footsore and poorly shod. That makes for good, pitiful singing. But it sure doesn't make for the gospel. I'm shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And I'm called that everywhere I put my foot, I'm to take the territory. And I'm called to trample Satan under my feet quickly. But until the church believes that and acts in it, principalities and powers take over everything. There's more slaves in the earth today than at ever any time in the history of the world. Why? Because the people of God have a slave mentality and an other world mentality that leaves everything to another age and doesn't obey God. Thankfully, there's a whole generation of young Christians, mostly millennials, who are waking up and standing up to this evil and fighting it and resisting it. How are they doing it? by laying their life down and taking up their cross and following the Lord. Well, that's that's too large a subject, as I said, to get into here. But I, I just pray that you will, next time you receive communion, next time you participate in the receiving of the body and blood, you will do it in this spirit. Uh, I can't think of anything more tawdry than to people going to the altar to receive communion or having it passed out in whatever, whatever way it's done. And I'm not making light of any of those ways. But what's so sad is people trying to work up the right emotions, get, trying to feel the right feelings, feel the right sentiments. Do this in remembrance of me. And we sit there and try to remember. Well, now you understand that's not what do this in remembrance of me means. It means make the declaration to the principalities and powers that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ is ruling now, and Christ will come again. And until he comes, we are to occupy till he comes. And I'm taking this bread and this wine, and in the power of the strength of this meal, I will walk through this wilderness and take the territory that God has ordained for me to take, slaying the giants in front of me and trusting God for the consummation of this age. At the, at the same time, I'm, I'm forgiving my enemies. I'm receiving forgiveness where I need to receive forgiveness. 
Uh, I'm trusting you for the healing of my mind, my spirit, my soul, my body, my emotions, my relationships. Uh, The meal that was left to us is something even a child can digest, but takes the whole body of Christ and many, many years of study and teaching to unpack. I hope this is helping you. Most of all, I hope it will help you engage communion in faith and never again go to it with a lackadaisical or bored spirit, God forbid. But far more than that, never go to it uh, with fear and uh, uh, misunderstanding uh, because you are living in love and forgiveness towards your brother. You are living in unity. And if there's any lack of that in your heart, you're putting it right immediately before you receive communion so that it becomes life-giving and not death-dealing. God, God's never in, intended it to be anything but life. Now in the closing moments that we've got together, I want to read to you a portion from Andrew Murray's book on the power of the blood of Jesus. For those of you who may not know Andrew Murray, uh, you need to know Andrew Murray. You need to have every book he ever wrote. And you can find them uh, fairly easily now online. And you really need every one of them. Andrew Murray was a great pastor in South Africa uh, who uh, ministered to uh, that part of the world in the late uh, 1800s. And uh, probably one of the most I mean, if ever a man was ahead of his time, it was Andrew Murray. But I I, I can't take the time we've got to talk to you about Andrew Murray as much as I would like to. But this is what he says, quoting from uh, John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. Then he quotes again what we've already referred to from 1 Corinthians ten sixteen: The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The drinking of the blood of the Lord Jesus is the subject brought before us in these words. Just as water has a twofold effect, so it's also true of this holy blood. When water is used for washing, it cleanses. But if we drink it, we are refreshed and revived. He who desires to know the full power of the blood of Jesus must be taught by him what the blessing of drinking the blood is. Everyone knows the difference there is between washing and drinking. Necessarily, uh, it's pleasant to use water for cleansing, but it's much more necessary and reviving when you drink it. Without its cleansing, it is not possible to live as we ought to. But without drinking, we cannot survive at all. It's only by drinking that we enjoy the full benefit of its power to sustain life without drinking the blood of the Son of God. It is without most hearty appropriation of it, uh, life cannot be obtained. Now, let, let me explain what he's saying here. He's obviously not saying that there's some kind of superstitious thing that you you have to do to obtain eternal life. Eternal life is in your union with the Lord Jesus and your relationship with him. But at the same time, when you read John chapter 6, we just read a portion of it, you need to take time and read the whole chapter and meditate about it. What he's saying here is that the blood cleanses us just like water cleanses us. But to drink water has to do with sustaining your very life. You can wash in it, and that's important for life, but drinking it is 
vital for sustaining life. In the same way, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin, forgives us legally, but to walk in the power of the life of the Son of God, he says, you must drink it. Now, Jesus didn't apologize about this. You know, when he said it, he upset people so badly they they left him and his disciples said, uh, you know, <laughs> I can imagine those guys saying, you know, Lord, you, you, you don't know what, would you, you think you should adjust that a little bit? I mean, that kind of freaked everybody out. No, Jesus, Jesus then said what he said to the disciples. He just said it stronger. He just said it again. He said the exact same thing again without softening it. He even strengthened it. So what does he mean by that? Does that, does that mean if, if you are living in separation from God, but every now and then you sneak around and take communion like a, like you see in a mafia movie, you know, you kill a bunch of people and then you go to communion and take communion. That's, that all makes it good. Obviously not. But what he is talking about here is the difference between just being cleansed and taking in the life so that your life and his life become the same life. Uh, the, the cleansed person is cleansed. And, and you know, yeah, he's going to, quote, go to heaven. If that's all you're focused on is just going to heaven, I, I guess, yeah, you're, First John 1, 7, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If, is, is that all we're, we're interested in? No, I think there's something far greater that needs to happen in, uh, in this, this desire to draw near to God and to be in union with him and to become one with him. It's not just about being forgiven. It's about his life becoming one with your life and your life becoming one with his life so that you you become an extension of him and he makes his life manifested to you but then makes his life manifested through you. Now, I don't normally put into the recorded portion of this message every every month the same thing that was in the letter portion. They they serve normally two different purposes. But I'm, I want to read to you something that I wrote in the letter in the closing moments that we have here. Because I... I found myself saying some things there that I really wanted to get across in the recorded message. And uh, I, hope you'll, I hope you'll take it to heart, especially in reference to what I just read to you from uh, Andrew Murray. Uh, see, I keep wanting to make sure you understand what Andrew Murray just said. So I'm, I'm trying to do what Jesus didn't even bother to do. Jesus didn't bother to clarify it. He just made it even more to the point. But I quoted in the newsletter a statement from Father Alexander Schmiemann, great Greek Orthodox scholar, Russian Orthodox scholar, where he said, genuine faith lives not by curiosity, but by thirst. And Psalm 63 says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry, weary land where there is no water. Thirsting for the life of Jesus is more than just getting cleansed of our sins. It's longing to be so in union with him, drinking his blood, breathing his air, living in union with him. And so I wrote, these words. I suppose there's a time in the early journey of life with Jesus that faith can be limited to what we might call a strong interest in spiritual things. We, we go to meetings and we listen to messages. and If we're really serious, we read and even study. But youth can't help but be divided by the variety of life's options and we're easily distracted and such distractions are no crime. 
it's a natural, even expected thing of young people to want to explore. After all, everything is new. But whether it's the mere passing of time or the wear and tear of living through the events and seasons of time, faith eventually becomes no longer just an interest in spiritual things. It ceases to be an item, even the top item on our list of several priorities. At some point, which is different for each of us because we're all created to be unique, faith becomes a thirst, a longing. That longing for a close union with the object of our faith drives us to to seek the most possible closeness that we can have in the earthly realm. There may be those glitches of the brain now and then that seem to offer some reasonable argument that all this just can't really be true, can it? Such thoughts are so devoid of reason, of meaning, or of attraction that they really are easily dismissed as fast as they sneak in. We find that the struggle to believe is not even in our sphere of consideration anymore. You have lived with him. You have wept in his arms. You've known his correction and his provision and his care. You've experienced his engagement with you through life. It comes a point where you do not waste time thinking about mere human questions as if you are still a novice on the threshold of truth. How do you struggle to believe that there is really air or sunlight or water? He has become your very life. In him, you literally do live and move and have your being. It is at this point in life that faith stops being a interest and a topic of discussion among like-minded seekers. And faith becomes, as Father Schmeeman said, a thirst. I simply do not think in terms of wondering about whether this or that faith proposition can really be true. I might as well wonder if I was begotten or had a mother. In him I have come to live and move and have my being. There are moments, thankfully brief ones, or I could not endure them. When my longing to be with him, to see his face, to be fully home, is so overwhelmingly present that I know my body could not survive the intensity of that longing. And I understand why only a resurrected body can stand that intensity. This is not a death wish. It's not a fantasy that I turn to because life has been difficult and I would like to be transferred to a place with a better climate. It's not even thinking about heaven. I'm thinking about a person himself. I want to be closer. I want to know as I am known. Now I know my sacramental brothers and sisters who come from a tradition where the offering of the body and blood is only celebrated corporately and under the direction of trained, ordained leadership will possibly wince at what I'm about to say here, but I also know they'll forgive me for it. The only place I have ever been able to turn at times of such longing is to bread and wine, alone with him in his presence. He said that as often as I ate this bread and drank this cup, I was remembering, that is, reconnecting with him. Yes, corporately we reconnect with each other, And both are vital. But when this longing I'm trying to describe here is strong in me, I turn to the simple, homely meal that I long to come home to. Revelation 3.20 says I can. It says that he knocks at the door and waits for me to open it and he will come in and eat with me and I will eat with him. And you can't get more intimate than that. And in those moments, I fall before him as simply dependent, helpless, and childlike as I can. I take and eat and drink because in these moments, faith is no longer a curiosity. Faith is a thirst. I want to try to make you thirsty too.
Because the invitation to the table with just you and him alone together is always being offered. And you alone are the only one who can hear that invitation that was sent to you. And you alone are the only one that can respond to it for you. Father, please teach us how to be childlike, how to receive the real food and the real drink. You said this is the only real food and this is the only real drink there is. The normal food of the earthly life just dissipates and has to be replaced the next day. What you eat and drink from me has eternal life in it. Not that we superstitiously look to bread and wine as our source of life. We, we can't sort through all the religious arguments about that. All we know is you said, you said, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, your presence is in it. And when we're hungry and thirsty, we have a place to go. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for your body and your blood. Amen.